0: The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When you look at your life, who is someone that you look up to for inspiration or for motivation? You know, to... To push through difficult times. Maybe it was a coach in your history. Maybe it's some neighbor that just kind of motivated you and encouraged you to persevere. You know, when I look at the Christian life and trying to live it in faithfulness, living it in fidelity, I, I need help. I, I need those people that are kind of motivating me, encouraging me. And, and much of that comes from you, actually, the saints of the present day, where I watch you suffer and walk through life and, and you know, go through the trials and adversities that you do and handle success as well, I, I, I look at you and I, I'm motivated. So we both the saints of the present day but also the saints of the past day. You know, since 2004, I've been trying to cover one biographical sermon per year uh, on just a saint that has, um, that has served faithfully, lived well, and, and is for us a good example of how we can finish well, I, I do it for a number of reasons. First, I think that it's, um, I think that it's scriptural. You know, in Hebrews chapter twelve, uh, you know, the writer says we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And I used to think, you know, like the angels in heaven were looking at us, watching us. And I, I realized when I decided to read eleven before twelve, uh, the witnesses were actually the saints that lived faithfully. At that hall of faith that we reference, that Samson himself was in, and Jephthah and the other, the other judges we studied, uh, that the, the cloud of witnesses is actually the saints before us that are encouraging us forward. And so I think it's scriptural, I think it's wise, I think it's just pastoral wisdom. I mean, we see people who fail and fall down, and yet they're still used of God. It kind of giving hope to us, because we know our frailties, we know where we're, where we're missing the mark. And then I I think, too, that it's, uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just not pastoral wisdom per se, but good instruction. To have wisdom from the ages past helps us understand our own. You know, we fall prey all the time to chronological snobbery where we think that our wisdom in this day is, because it's the latest, it's the best. And the wisdom of the age actually can shed light on our wisdom. What is true wisdom or not? And then last, I think it can be worshipful. One author said it this way. He said, God ordains that we gaze on his glory dimly mirrored in the ministry of his flawed saints. He intends for us to consider their lives and peer through the imperfections of their faith and behold the beauty of God. That's where I hope comes today. hope that you see the glory of God in the life of this dear saint. Uh, So James Packer, J.I. Packer, James and L. Packer, is his name Now, normally I choose saints that have been dead for 100, 200 years because time is necessary to gain perspective on the true impact of their life. Now, last year and this year, I've chosen saints closer. And the reason I've done that is because we get to look in the times in which they live. So we lose a little, a little bit of perspective, but we gain knowledge of the times in which they lived and preached and taught and suffered. Any historian studying a saint 200 years ago would love to beam back in their days and figure out what was life really like on the ground. Well, we know. So at the risk of being a little bit too focused on the time, at least we'll pick up. We know the man in the times in which he lived. So here's what we do. I, I generally just do a quick biographical sketch, take maybe 15 minutes to cover his life, and then make some applications to us at the end, things that we can take away and say, well, these are areas of my life that I might need to consider. So first, a biographical sketch. And you don't need, if you are a note taker, you don't need to, I can send you the transcript if you want it, so you can just sit back and kind of enjoy uh, the story of a man's life that was lived for his glory and was quite successful. Okay, so he was born on July 22. Uh, 1926. He was born in Gloucester, England, the son of James Percy Packer, a clerk for the railroad and Dorothy Mary Harris, a schoolmistress in Bristol. He was born in modest condition, so in his words he says that we were from a lower middle class family living in rented accommodations right near the rail line that he worked. They were an Anglican family, but by his own admission they were quite nominal. They'd go faithfully to church They'd never speak about God. They'd never speak to the things of God. There's no act of faith. They didn't pray before meals. And are two events in his life that are significant and really kind of chart the trajectory of his life, and that is that in September of 1933, seven years of age, enters the national school. Uh, he enters it quite shy, small, you know, quiet easy target for bullies. He was bullied early in life. In fact, on three weeks after starting school, bullies were chasing him. He ran out of the schoolyard right onto the London Road, which is the main thoroughfare through Gloucester, and he got hit by a truck. And it crushed the right side of his head, and uh, they took him to the hospital. The surgeon was able to pull the fragments out of his brain, he would forever have a dent in the side of his head. He would have to wear a black aluminum plate shielding his head with a elastic strap, which means he didn't participate in any of the games or any of the normal activities of a young person. Uh, but this would have an effect towards developing in him a capacity to read, loving to read. So that was a tragic event. That was followed by another event, not tragic, but he would go with his father Uh, often on Saturdays, because his father would go to get caught up on paperwork at the rail line. And in the clerk's office, there were typewriters, two typewriters. And so while he would go with his father to spend his time, he learned to type. And so he began to develop this reading and writing or typing very, very early in life. In fact, on his 11th birthday, he was given an old Oliver typewriter, uh, for you know, most kids are getting bikes, and he's getting a typewriter. He would use a manual typewriter uh, until he couldn't see anymore in 2016. So he was quite dedicated to it. Um, education. He went to somewhere in his 11th year when he got the typewriter. He enrolled in the Crypt School. This is an an old school. It was established in the mid 16th century. Some of the people that went, George Whitfield, went there. He went there and he began to study the classics, Uh, and um, there he would begin to be exposed to Christianity, not as the faith, just as an interest. For example, one of his teachers had them read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It was new on the scene, it was intriguing people, and so the teacher thought it would develop great conversation, and so they began to read that. He played chess with a son of a Unitarian minister, Unitarianism would hold to some of the teachings of Christ but deny his deity. And so this son of the Unitarian minister would try to convert him. And he always wondered, he says this, he says, why would people take some parts of the New Testament but reject Jesus' divinity? That kind of picking and choosing quickly became illogical to him. Now, he went to school here, studied well, did well enough to enter Oxford. Um, he had to enter Oxford on scholarships because his family was was so modest in their means. Now, on this side of the pond, we don't have the same university system that Britain does, but there would be uh, many colleges would make up Oxford or Cambridge. So Oxford has 45 different colleges that are part of the Oxford umbrella. He went to Corpus Christi College, and he went in the Second World War. So the enrollment was down because many of the men were overseas fighting The professorship was down. Many of them were overseas fighting. Uh, The food was scarce and poor, and the heat was hard to come by. The only building that was constantly heated was the library to protect the books, and so he would be in the library much of his time. But there it was discovered that he had an ability to handle complex arguments with ease and clarity. Now, let me speak to his conversion, because that took place at Oxford. So uh, not a Christian, admittedly so, Uh, Within three weeks, he attended the Intercollegiate Christian Union, or this would be like an inter-varsity or campus crusade. He was invited to go there, and so he heard the message, and he said, in his words, it was an uninteresting affair. Now, providentially, he agreed to go to a, hear a preacher on Sunday evening at a uh, church right nearby, and so he preached, and the man uh, expires the scripture. He said it was, he said it was boring. But then the man went into giving a testimony of how he came into the Christian faith through conversion. And that's when a light went off in Packer's mind and he realized, I have not entered in. In fact, he says it this way. He likened the experience to looking through a window into a room where some of the people were partying, enjoying themselves by playing games. As I watched, I could not understand the rules of the games they were playing. I was outside while they were inside. So he began to understand the need or the clarity to come in. So at the final hymn, he converted. He said, it was time for me to come inside. That was in 1944, and it was only yards away from where George Whitfield, of course a great evangelist of the 18th century, would have, was converted as well. So six weeks later, he begins studying the Bible. He experiences a second conversion, if you will. Uh, kind of. He converts to believing in the Bible. He was skeptical of the Bible but then he converted to a belief in the Bible. So he likened his experience to uh, C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis, when he came to faith, he likened it to, to getting on a ride at the park. You get on a ride at the park, and I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then by the end of the ride at the park, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I can't understand or I can't explain where it happened or how it happened. And so the same thing for J.I. Packer. He came to understand that the Bible is actually God's revealed. It's a revelation of himself through human witnesses. Here's what he said. In 1944, I went to a Bible study at which a vision from the book of Revelation was expounded. And whereas at the start, I did not believe that the Bible, which I had been assiduously reading since my conversion six weeks before, was God's trustworthy instruction. But at the end... Slightly to my surprise, I found myself unable to doubt that indeed it is. Now, later on, he would study, of course, the great reformer John Calvin, and he found his experience in the writings of Calvin. Here's what he says. He says, I found Calvin declare that every Christian, this is a good check for us, actually, that every Christian experiences the inward witness of the Spirit to the divine authority of Scripture. I rejoice to think that without every having heard a word on this subject, I had long known exactly what Calvin was talking about. Now, while he was still at Oxford, he was introduced to the Puritans. They would have a huge impact on his life. Uh, what happened was the, uh, there was an old Anglican clergyman who was losing his sight, and he donates all of his library to this Christian union. They knew Packer to be a bookish person, so he sorted through all of his books, and he found in there classics from the 16th and 17th century, and that's where he found the writings of George Whitfield. He found the writings of John Owen. John Owen, he says, I owe more, I think, to John Owen than to any other theologian, ancient or modern, and I'm sure that I owe more to this little book on mortification than to anything else he wrote. And what he's speaking about here is that Packer was influenced by this theology from, it's called a Keswick theology. It's kind of a, you've heard it, let go and let God. Kind of surrender yourself to God and He'll fill you and drive sin out. And we would not espouse that theology at all. It's unbiblical. Uh, he found it to be completely despairing because he couldn't get over sin. He couldn't understand how sin was so present in his life until he read John Owen. And then John Owen explained, you know, listen, the cross of Christ, it defeated the dominion of sin, but not the presence of sin. We still struggle with sin. Every Christian still wrestles with sin and does that battle. John Owen is the one that said, if you're not killing sin, it's killing you. I mean, you're in an ongoing battle We can make peace with it, but that's the reality that I think all of us testify to. So he found Owen and it brought him to a, a place of great understanding. Okay, well, well, he would go on, of course, to finish his schooling, getting, getting double honors. He, he got honors in two different degrees. Uh, after graduating, he took a gap year. Um, a gap year. He taught at Oak Hill Theological College in London. This is really interesting because, you know, these little sidelines of life, we don't think they have much of an impact. But two pivotal events happened while he was teaching for the year at Oak Hill. He was teaching Greek and Latin and philosophy. Uh, The first is that he sat under the teaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Every week he would sit. He was 50 years old at the time at Westminster Chapel in London, and he would sit under his teaching. And he was a remarkable preacher, in fact, Packer said this about how uh, Lloyd-Jones' preaching hit him. It said, it came to me with the force of electric shock, bringing to at least one of his listeners, that's him, more of a sense of God than any other man. He was the greatest man I had known. There's more of him under my skin than there is of any human teacher. So it was profound, reformed, theologically heavy, Puritan-rooted type of preaching. It influenced him greatly. The other thing he learned there was that he could teach. And he said these words, he said, I discovered that nobody needed to teach me to teach. Now, at the time, very few had PhDs in theological education. Most were M.A.'s. So he went back to Oxford, got an M.A. and a Doctor of Philosophy in Theology. He wrote his dissertation on the great uh, Puritan Richard Baxter. The title of his dissertation was The Redemption and Restoration of Man in the Thought of Richard Baxter. It was a short work, it was only 499 pages typed on a manual typewriter. <laughs> now most think of him as an academic, and he was an academic, he was a theologian, he was a writer, but he was also, he entered the ministry in 1952, he was ordained to the diaconate, and then ordained to full orders, and served in the church for about three or four years in Birmingham, or a suburb of Birmingham. Uh, he was greatly effective, remaining an Anglican for the bulk of his life, Um, at crossing theological lines. He could speak as easily to an evangelical and a Baptist tradition as he could in an Anglican tradition. So after after serving in ministry for a number of years, he went to teach at Tyndale Hall in Bristol, and then he had a series of posts at Lattimore House and back to Tyndale Hall, Trinity College, uh, until 1979 when he crossed the pond and came over to... um, to Regent College in Vancouver, Canada, and there he preached for the next 37 years until he retired 2016 from macular degeneration. Uh, He was married. He married a woman, a Welsh woman. He was an Englishman, married a Welsh woman, Kit Mullet. And and this is kind of a a twist of providence as well in terms of here are two people that were at a place neither were supposed to be. So she was a nurse at St. Barts in London, and she wanted to go to this Christian conference in Surrey, uh, but she had to work. But when she went to work, the head nurse said, you have an infection in your eye, sent her home. So she ended up going to the conference. Packer was never supposed to go to the conference. His friend was teaching at the conference, but he double booked. And so he asked Packer if he could take the teaching, which he did. So they end up at the same place at the same time, neither expected to be there. After the first teaching, no one went up to him and talked. And so Kit Mullet was just aghast that nobody would at least greet the teacher you know, with conversation, and so she went up and spoke to him. And that began conversations that lasted throughout the weekend. Now, uh, at the end, he thought it was over. But he says these words. He says, uh, sorry, didn't turn the page. Um, he said, I could not get her out of my mind. I realized something drastic happened. Now, when asked by an interviewer later, was it love at first sight? He said, I guess the realization of it did not come until 48 hours after it happened. Call it the depth charger effect. If you remember, a depth charge is a, is a can on the back of a ship during World War II loaded with explosives and pushes it. just sinks silently, and then at the right time, it comes off with a huge explosion, preferably near the submarine that it's seeking to sink. But that's, the, that's, the, that's how it hit them. Now, um... Seeking to reconnect afterwards, he, he writes her under the guise of he wanted to do a walking trip in Wales, and so could she give him some, well, she read right through the ploy, they corresponded, and then, of course, he said it was a storybook room romance, even though, in his words, he was an immature and churned-up young man, painfully aware of himself, and an odd person, somewhat solitary, and very poor of human relationships. So to those of you that that applies, you're in good shape. He proposed her on a Tuesday evening in December of 52. The next day she comes to Westminster to hear Martin Lloyd Jones give this seminar on Puritanism, and Packer was teaching as well. So she's his now his fiance. So they're sitting in the audience, these two women, she came with a friend. So Martin Lloyd Jones leans over to Packer and makes a comment that these women are here just to meet men. And so Packer then informs Lloyd Jones, he says, well. Actually, one of those women is my fiance, and I'm going to marry her. He goes, just what I said. <laughs> uh, he would marry her on July 17, 1954. Uh, according to one author, she was the opposite, opposite of Packer. She was relational. She was independent. Uh, she had full personality, practical. Uh, she can find it later. When he took an interest, I was surprised. I still am. That's what she said. He wrote later, she was not in the least like the wife I had imagined myself finding one day. And a good word to us who have been married or even those who desire to be married. He said, achieving a happy compatibility of incompatibles is part of the maturing effect that marriage is meant to have. I mean, the working out of the differences is part of that work that God does in marriage. where they would ultimately adopt three children. In his career, he repudiated the success ethic but he was an incredible success. His first book published in 1958, Fundamentalism and the Word of God, that was sold, sold 20,000 copies in the first year, which was significant in 58, and it's never been out of print since then. It was a, it was a defense about this growing liberalism against the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, but he wrote other books. Many of you know, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I think we have some of these in our book stall. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God is a short work, but it is, like a, it is so effective at reconciling. How can God be sovereign over those whom he calls, and yet man or woman is still responsible to respond to God at the gospel presentation? And he seeks to reconcile those, and he does an incredible job but also Knowing God. Many of you have read Knowing God. 1.5 million copies, probably the fifth most influential book that's been written that have shaped evangelicals in the last 50 years. It's a wonderful book. the, The premise of it was he saw that the lack of knowing God is the key reason the church is so weak, and so he wanted to know God. Incredible quotes in that book. Kind of like you can see a person's you can understand the depth of a person's Christianity by how they understand God to be as father. So just both of those are incredible books, but he wrote Keeping a Step of the Spirit, uh, Quest for Godliness, you know, kind of a spiritual life of the Puritans. Uh, he wrote A Way of Weakness just in 2013. I read it before preaching uh, probably two months ago. Incredible short little book. So he wrote close to 50 books. It's an incredible amount of Production. But he says the greatest work that he did was in being the general editor of the ESV, which is the Bible we use in this church. So as one author said, he kind of tabulated, no fewer than 388 books, journal articles, book reviews, entries in biblical and theological dictionaries, 91 theologically substantive and often lengthy articles, in the four volumes of Packer's collected shorter writings. But it was not just the volume that he produced. It was the scope. He could write at an academic level, but he wrote, I think, most effectively at a lay level. He called himself kind of an adult catechist. You know, he wanted to catechize or instruct adults in the faith, lay leaders in the faith, lay people in the faith. He wrote Concise Theology. It is an incredible book, Concise Theology. And I'll put these books on the web. Um, Concise Theology is 94 key Christian doctrines all explained in 600 words or less. It's incredible. It's a tremendous reference tool, but it's also a great discipleship tool. I encourage you to get it. Um, What was the root of his success? Well, one of his biographers quoted Voltaire and said, Packer cultivated his garden instead of engaging in grand designs. He just worked hard. He worked hard at every opportunity that was given to him. Well, he would pass from this life to the next on July 17, 2020. That was just last year. How did he die? Well, he died firm in faith. Now, it's interesting that a number of years before he died, he inquired over the schoolmaster of the crip school that he went to prior to Oxford. And he asked about his health by the name of David Williams. And he found out that he had lost lost any faith. He was just waiting to die. And here's what Packer said. He reflected on it. He says, if the light of hope goes out, then life shrinks to mere existence, something far less than life was meant to be. And, and for him, it, he went on to say one of the most remarkable things of the gospel is its capacity to create and sustain a life of hope. And he held on to that hope to the end. So that's kind of the life of Jad Packer. There's two great resources. Uh, Alistair McGrath is an uh, He was the um, principal of Wycliffe Hall, which is where they both studied. He was much younger than Packer, but knew Packer well. He wrote a great biography, as well as Leland Ryken, the former professor at Wheaton, uh, wrote one as well. But those are the two main biographies, but, but he's written just read Packer is what I would suggest to you. So what do we take away from this? How can we learn? Well, let me just give you seven takeaways. First, the necessity of reading the Word of God, trusting the Word of God, um, understanding the Word of God. Listen to how Packer explained that. He said, most importantly, get the big picture in terms of trying to understand the Bible. We all struggle with it. He says, don't worry too much at first about specific sentences you don't quite understand. The details fit when you've got the big picture. This is my first and fundamental exhortation with regard to Bible reading and study. Scripture is no rag bag of religious bits and pieces, he says, unrelated to each other. Rather, it's a tapestry in which all the complexities of the weave display a single pattern of judgment and mercy and promise and fulfillment. So there are all kinds of books, you know, God's pattern. Uh, If you're interested, all kinds of books that kind of help give the redemptive arc of Scripture that when you understand the big picture, then these smaller things, like how do judges fit in with, with Joshua and Moses? We're trying to show that from the pulpit. Plenty of good books do that as well. But this was his view of Scripture. He says, all Scripture, and this is really important, it's a little dense, goes a little into the world of Puritanism in terms of how he writes it, but it's clear. All Scripture is witness to God. It's given by divinely illuminated human writers, in all scripture is God witnessing to himself in and through their words. The way into the mind of God is through the express mind of these human writers so that the writer of the Bible looks for that characteristic first. But the text must be read and reread as God's own self-revelatory revel- instruction given in the form of human testimony. God has chosen for his own purposes and for our good to reveal himself through the minds of these illuminated human writers. So when we're reading it, we're looking, God, how are you revealing yourself to me now? That's how we're called to read the scriptures. So do you read it? Or let me ask you this, to the degree that you do read it will reflect on what you believe about its authority or its divine inspiration. You know, many of us, I think, will hold to a high view of scripture but we don't read it. May I encourage you to try again? Listen, we have these psalm studies coming up in the fall. These studies, both the men and the women, jump in one of those. Now, I recognize there are plenty of good books on Christian living, but we don't want to get so far away from the scriptures themselves that we want to study them, read them, particularly in the context of other brothers and sisters. Okay, secondly, secondly, first is, of course, read. Uh, secondly is the value of old writings. As I mentioned, he was influenced by the Puritans in Oxford, and it was this accidental encounter that would shape the balance of his life. It, 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 here's what he said. It, it helped him to acknowledge that the most pressing questions of the day in the Christian life have been engaged in before. The stuff we're facing now, it has different cultural dressing. But it's the same stuff. He was a master at resourcing and enhancing his engagement with contemporary struggles by looking at the wisdom from the past. So here's how Lewis explains it. C.S. Lewis, that influenced Packer greatly, he wrote on the introduction on um, Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Athanasius was a church father way back in the day. C.S. Lewis wrote this about old writings. He said, We need to keep the clean breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. This can only be done by reading old books. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. In reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Packer says the same thing. He says, keep regular company with yesterday's great teachers. It helps us open our eyes to the wisdom that might otherwise be denied to us. So he had a great ministry of of retrieval and reappropriation. He takes the wisdom of the past and he brings it to today. For us. So you read Quest for Godliness. It's just, he's going to be reading in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, and he's going to chew it up and spit it back out to you in a way that you understand it and makes cultural sense. Packer himself, and this is, I think, how Scott had it in his prayer, actually, he said he wanted to be a voice that called people back to the old paths of truth and wisdom. Sorry, Scott, there's a quote coming for you later. Um, so read books. You ought to always read an old book. You know, the people that have influenced me greatly, the, the people that have most influenced me are dead people. They're dead people that have, read book, that have written books that are still 100, 200, 300 years later, they're still shedding wisdom. Reading right now, Richard Sibbs, a bruised reed, 16th century. It reads like today. It's very, very helpful. Let me encourage you to do that. Thirdly, true faith is an integration of theology and spirituality. This is really important. In other words, what I'm saying is, you you need to know doctrine, but you need to have devotion with doctrine. So he says this, he gave a seminar, he gave a a lecture in Vancouver on December 11, 1989, and this is what it was entitled, Introduction to Systematic Spirituality. He, He defined spirituality as an inquiry into the whole Christian enterprise of pursuing, achieving, and cultivating communion with God which includes both public worship and private devotion, and the result of this is the actual Christian life. In other words, you can't actually live a Christian life if you don't have a devotion, affections, a heartbeat for God. The Puritans helped him in this area. He says this about them. He says they had a mindset on rigorous biblical commitment to doctrinal and ethical precision, but they aimed at holiness in life. he said, Puritanism was essentially an an experimental faith, a religion of heart work, a a sustained practice of seeking the face of God in a way that our own Christianity is often not. So, you know, instead of the cerebral approach, the rationalistic approach, you have thesis and propositions and doctrinal statements. There has to be, and and this particularly for those who are young, uh, there has to be that heartbeat that, If I see the beauty there, then must be the one beautiful who made the beauty. So so it has to lift all the things that we study about God, have to lift, lift us up to not just knowing about him, but loving him as well. In fact, Packer kind of chides the Christian. He says, when Christians meet, they talk to each other about their Christian work and their Christian interests, their Christian acquaintances, the state of the church, the problems of theology. But rarely do they speak of their daily experience with God. We don't spend much time alone or together dwelling on the wonder of the fact that God and sinners have communion at all. No, we just take that for granted. Give our minds to other matters. Thus we make it plain that communion with God is a small thing to us. Let me encourage you toward that. This is always the, really the heartbeat of leadership. That we feel people have right theologies, large heads of theology. And they may even have large feet. This is an illustration from Packer, actually. Large feet to take you many different places. But small hearts. Small hearts of devotion. And so much of our obedience and much of our effort is driven by duty or a sense of right. But it's not driven by, I love him. He's worthy. He's worthy of me passing on this sin to pursue this path of holiness. So, so look at your, it's a good point of discussion today. To what degree is your heart integrated with your mind in terms of the faith? How often do you discuss the fact that it's a wonder to have communion with God at all? Uh, just a couple more short ones. Walking in truth will bring controversy. He was no stranger to controversy. He said this, he said, I always wanted peace. And like Richard Baxter, I've been involved in trouble, trouble, trouble all along the way. If you read the man or hear the man, you can't imagine he'd be a controversialist, but he really ended up being one for his entire life. Now, much of that was in defending Orthodox doctrine. But there are all kinds of controversies he got in. Gender roles, complementarianism, you know, Calvinism. He got into, you know, kind of the, the working of two denominations together in the church with evangelicals and Catholics. Ultimately, he got in controversy with opposing same-sex marriages. That actually caused him to separate from the church, which led to his defrocking or his losing his ministerial license, even in 2008 towards the end of his life. But here's how he wanted to be remembered. He said this because he was asked about it. He said, "Um, it was something that needed to be done, but it tends to be barren for the soul. That is, engaging in controversy. He says, "I'm not a controversialist by nature, but by necessity, I should like to be remembered as one who pointed to the pasture lands, to the pasture land. That's how he wanted to be remembered. He pointed to those pasture lands. Well, fifth, greatness can be clothed in normalcy. He was a normal guy. He was a towering intellect, and yet, towards the end of his life, he was still meeting with groups of high school students to talk to him about the faith." He loved jazz trains, mystery novels, locomotives were a lifelong fascination. He thought trains and, and trees and waterfalls uniquely helped him to see the transcendent. He had loved hot food, the kind of heat that produces a sweat on the brow. He was humorous. Talking to his students, he says, I'm Packer by name and Packer by nature. In other words, you're going to get a load of material. You better get ready. He's a funny man. Uh, the sixth, holiness is a fruit of life lived for the gospel. The theme of Packer's life, I think, would be holiness, if I had to draw it, Both prayer, holiness, and communing with God. Again, a few years before his death, an interviewer asked him, he lived long enough that I think he got asked this question often about how does he want to be remembered. He says, as I look back on the life that I lived, I like to be remembered as a voice. A voice that focused on the authority of the Bible, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the wonder of His substitutionary sacrifice and atonement for our sins. I would like to be remembered as a voice calling Christian people to holiness and challenging lapses in Christian moral standards. I should like to be remembered as someone who is always courteous in controversy, but without compromise. Last thing I would say to you about Packer 7 is that, his, um, that our lives are shaped by small and controversial things. So you think back on his life that I've just given you. You see this accident that would be tragic in anybody's understanding. And yet, in the hand of God, even the, tr- the tragic nature of that accident, it-, it had a formative move in his life. You think about something as simple as a typewriter. Uh, the typewriter then, combined with the accident, moves him into a path that he may never have chosen. You think about the chance meeting, the eye infection for his wife Kit, or the substitution of schedules, in his own life that puts him in place where he meets his future bride. They were married until the day of his death. You see all these little small things in Packer's life, but they kind of accumulate together and they begin to really kind of cast a life for him. You know, many of us look at the small things, you're reminded in Zephaniah, don't despise the day of small things. It's amazing how small things can add up and change your life. Your very life can be changed by these small things, tragic things, hardships you're facing, uh, even in in lives of children, how they they twist and bend you towards directions that you might never go. Thankfully, God is sovereign over these small things, and he creates in them a life that will bring him glory and for you to have joy. So let's take a moment now, and, and perhaps just use this time to give thanks to God for this life, an example for us, but also how does his life, and You know, this isn't a sermon to, like, go be like Packer. This is a sermon to say, no, go be like who you are, but allow these characteristics to influence your life, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.